Institute, the SCPA, for the week ending December 9, 2016. It's live and not so friendly skies edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I talk about the United Airlines SEC enforcement action for direct domestic corruption. We take a look at a suspension effort by the Monetary Authority of Singapore for a former Goldman Sachs trader around the 1MDB scandal. We take a look at the FATF report that the U.S. is weak on financial, excuse me, on beneficial ownership issues. We review Matt Kelly's blog post on the spending by Walmart on their FCPA internal investigation and remediation during their enforcement action. We note the release of our ebook, Trump on Compliance, which uh, comes from our colleagues on the Everything Compliance podcast and through the offices of uh, auspices rather of Corporate Compliance Insights. We take a look at the uh, resignation announcement of SEC Director of Enforcement Andrew Ceresny. Then Jay talks about a couple of uh, predictions that uh, he has heard from a Gibson Dunn briefing and a uh, uh, event he attended by um, developed by PwC and Sandpiper Partners. Uh, Jay also gives us a tasty preview of his upcoming weekend report. The episode comes in at uh, just over 37 minutes. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to This Week in FCPA for the week ending December 9th, 2016. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Translations himself, Jay Rose. And Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. How are things going out in Houston this week? You know, we had uh, actually got down to the 30s, so uh, winter has arrived in Texas. Well, we're, we're still, you know, it's all sunny in California, 70 during the day, maybe 50 at night. So it's still not a place, not a bad gig to have. So last night we had one of the best Thursday night football games, which uh, I suspect uh, warmed your heart in addition to your soul with uh, the Raiders losing and the Chiefs now leading the Western uh, division of the AFC. Um, looks like your Patriots will hold home field advantage. Uh, if things were to end this week, but there's still, uh, you know, there's always a, uh, uh, a, a rude surprise that we get when the Patriots go to Miami and wrap the season up there. So uh, it, it, it's things could still change, but big swing from the Raiders going from number one seed to the number five seed, and it might actually uh, make their life a little bit easier. I don't know. So it's not true that you want to go to Miami. You want to stay <laughs> in Boston. Boston, yeah. I, I don't want to go to Miami Beach. No. All right. <laughs> so uh, we'll have to leave the, uh, the discussion of the Red Sox for another week because uh, I think they had a big home run at the uh, um, uh, winter meetings. So, uh, but we're on football now, so we'll just stick with that. Okay. So, so let's uh, go ahead, sir. Yeah, uh, let's let's do it. So we had, uh, I thought, really an interesting week in many areas that touch and are corruption compliance, but are compliance related. So um, maybe if I could start with uh, what was a very interesting report from the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, and it really talked about the gaps and weaknesses in the United States around um, beneficial ownership. 
you know, we've had a lot of information come out about beneficial ownership this year, uh, certainly because of the Panama Papers. And it shed a spotlight in, I think, a big gap in the U.S. fight against corruption and terrorism in the beneficial ownership stage. Um, if you pay, or if you receive a bribe or you receive the benefits of corruption, you've got to put that money somewhere. And that's where offshore companies come into play, and that's where beneficial owners come into play. And unfortunately, the U.S., because of the uh, federal system where corporations uh, are still incorporated on the state level, and that means there's 50 states with all with different uh, rules and regulations regarding uh, corporate formation, there are weaknesses regarding beneficial ownership that undermine the effectiveness <clears throat> Uh, of preventive and supervisory measures by the United States government. Um, in fact, FATF report said that it uh, negatively impacted financial institutions and other businesses in their effort to tackle money laundering. And indeed, the U.S. scored the lowest among all G20 countries for uh, beneficial ownership of um, beneficial ownership information. So, a uh, very interesting report. It highlights, I think, uh, serious hole or gap in uh, that part of the U.S. fight against money laundering, laundering and indeed corruption. And if you think back to the um, 1MDB scandal, and there were allegations of large purchases of real estate in both California, New York, I should say both, should not say both because it was uh, California, New York, and Miami, M Miami once again, um, by benefit companies with beneficial owners who, uh, so the uh, true ownership was uh, disguised. So uh, hopefully that's something that uh, can be worked on in, uh, in the coming years, but a big gap in the U.S. fight against um, bribery and corruption and terrorism because of the lack of information on beneficial owners. And uh, since you bring up beneficial ownership, uh, we need to give a shout out to our friend uh, Bo Richardson at Bureau Van Dyke. Okay. And uh, they are uh, one of the top firms in the field to provide uh, both uh, domestic and international uh, beneficial ownership information. And uh, should you uh, have an interest in learning more about that, uh, Bo and his uh, colleagues would be happy to tell you how they can help. Uh, next, Jay, we had a, once again, what appeared to be tangential um, uh, issue pop up around bribery and corruption, but it really shows uh, kind of how it all relates together. And that is uh, a regulatory entity called the Monetary Authority of Singapore has filed an application to suspend the former Golden Sachs trader uh, in conjunction with uh, the 1MDB scandal. This uh, Goldman Sachs, former Golden Sachs trader now, he led and was the client relationship manager for Goldman Sachs with the 1MDB, which is the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, and led Goldman Sachs' effort on three bond offerings, which I think raised about $1.2 billion for the fund and uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in um, uh, profits to, to Goldman Sachs. The uh, reason that they are seeking to suspend him is uh, not for those activities. It's for yet another activity. He provided a uh, letter of reference to um, financial authority and financial institution in Luxembourg for one of the key players, Mr. Uh, uh, Jay Lowe, 
who's alleged to have been uh, part of the uh, group that purloined monies and funds from MPB. And uh, in this letter, on Goldman Sachs' letterhead, he indicated that Goldman Sachs had uh, performed a substantive due diligence on Mr. Lowe and that uh, there were no red flags present uh, on him. And uh, Goldman Sachs uh, was not aware of this, apparently, has disavowed uh, and did disavow the letter, said it was not correct. Uh, and um, so the, uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is seeking to suspend uh, the Goldman Sachs trader. But it shows a couple of things, or it raised a couple of things for me, uh, Jay. The first is when you perform due diligence, you have to do the due diligence. You cannot rely on the uh, representations of a third party. You cannot rely on representations of self-certification. We saw that in Unioil, uh, companies that allow self-certification for due diligence and compliance programs. Uh, if you rely on that, it's not going to give you any protection going forward. So uh, I thought that was an interesting kind of tie-in to our greater anti-corruption uh, compliance practice, yet it was something that would, would not seem to have been uh, really been a part of it. And in your blog that you read about this earlier in the week, I think you also hypothesized that this could be a, a much more uh, global matter here, that we're not just looking at Singapore, but this uh, the tentacles of this case might reach a lot further as we keep digging. A absolutely. Um, but you had uh, you had some hot topics that uh, come out of the sunny weather of Southern California and perhaps even a little bit further up the coast. So why don't you uh, give us those? Sure. So um, as, as Tom said, we actually had an SEC and DOJ event here in Los Angeles uh, yesterday, and um, it was a very interesting program. We had a couple uh, representatives of the DOJ, uh, Stephen Cazares, who's an assistant to AUSA, Deputy Chief of Major Fraud, and Rich or Richard E. Robinson, who's an assistant AUSA, senior litigation counsel, and then representing the SEC was Michelle Lane. And this is a program that they've done. Uh, this was the 10th year in a row, and they have representatives from the government, and then they had a couple of uh, outside counsel who were former DOJ and SEC who now work uh, in the private sector. And it was a really uh, informative four-hour um, session. Um, first of all, they started off by uh, what we've been doing uh, in the um, FCPA arena, kind of uh, hypothesizing what uh, their jobs and their, um, you know, uh, their future may look like under uh, a Trump presidency. Uh, most of the people use the uh, FE, the uh, SEC and DOJ disclaimer to uh, voice their personal views. And, um, you know, it was a really uh, very candid conversation, uh, especially from folks speaking from the government. One of the interesting things that we heard is that there should be two uh, enforcement decisions coming out within the next month or so uh, based here in Southern California. One of them is FCPA, and another one will be um, uh, another issue dealing in the fraud department. So, um, you know, my, the wheels in my head start spinning, and I'm wondering what kind of matter could be coming out of Southern California. Maybe it has something to do with the motion picture studios. 
which have been under investigation for several years. So that's one thing that's uh, interesting and, and worth watching. Um, another event that was happening at the same town, uh, same time, just a couple streets away, is that uh, Gibson Dunn was giving a presentation about the road ahead, uh, DOJ and federal enforcement, also what would happen under the Trump administration. And what I found interesting from an FCPA perspective is that the moderator, who was a partner in the uh, Gibson Dunn LA office, and she heads up their uh, uh, crisis management uh, group, her name is uh, Deborah Wong Yang. And on this past Monday, uh, she met with uh, President-elect Trump at the Trump Towers, and she's under consideration to become uh, the next head of the SEC. So it's, uh, it's very rare that anything of his FCPA nature comes up in LA, and for two things to be happening on the same day, I figured that we were quite lucky to uh, be the beneficiaries of that. So with, um, I really, uh, I, I, I've been thinking about your your query about what companies it might be in, that uh, would have a major um, enforcement action announced, or at least there'd be a major announcement. And, and if it's going to be limited to Southern California, I agree, uh, some of the movie industries uh, may, may, I know they are, are, are previously announced that they have ongoing investigations, but perhaps a large construction company or uh, some other entity or another that uh, just really not on our radar. But with Deb Yang, uh, really any thoughts one way or the other on the type of prosecutor or type of head of the SEC she might be? I know she um, is a former prosecutor, so, um, you know, those people tend to be a little bit more law and order than, uh, than other folks. So it, it might mean kind of a continuation of what we have seen uh, with Mary Jo White. But it, really any thoughts you might have on that? Yeah, I, I would say she's um, extremely qualified. Um, you know, she was uh, an attorney here in the Central District of California, and on um, many of a very high-profile uh, bet the firm type matters, uh, she leads those at Gibson. So um, she is just, um, as you said, she's she's very much law and order, and um, I think it would uh, be a, a great appointment to. Uh, the Trump administration, and it, it would be nice to find somebody that uh, is not a billionaire or doesn't have any other uh, agendas, which uh, many of the picks thus far have seemed to display. So um, I think it would be a great appointment, and we'd be very excited to see that uh, from a Southern California perspective. Uh, we did have some news from uh, our friends at uh, Walmart. Uh, this, uh, I think last week, Walmart filed a qu quarterly report uh, detailing the uh, cost, uh, continuing costs they've had on their FCPA uh, investigation and remediation. And Matt Kelly, our colleague Matt Kelly, our colleague from the Everything Compliance podcast, wrote about it on his blog, Radical Compliance, in a post entitled Walmart FCPA Cost $820 million and Counting. And in it, he listed the amount of monies that Walmart has spent by by year, by fiscal year, and then by quarter for each year. It's a really an excellent resource to, to tell you the amounts of money spent. And you see how Walmart ramped up in 2013, 100 million, and 2000, 
uh, excuse me, 150 million, 157 million uh, in 2014, 181 million in 2015, 173 million, 2016, 126 million. Um, but he breaks it out by investigative cost and remediation cost for the compliance program. And the investigative costs, as you would suspect, Jay, are considerably higher at $557 million. But the compliance uh, program remediation costs are $263 million. And the, uh, the thing that really struck me is a couple of things. First of all, the significant decrease, certainly in the past uh, two fiscal years, of cost uh, both for the investigation and the uh, ongoing compliance program or mediation, that would probably speak to that the investigation uh, has or had tailed off a little bit. And then um, uh, from the remediation standpoint, uh, that the compliance program had matured and less direct uh, immediate costs were required and uh, more ongoing uh, costs. And if you, as you have talked about, Sometimes uh, you, 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 as Mr. Translations, are able to help companies reduce their ongoing costs uh, in effective ways uh, with your services. I suspect others, uh, vendors, can, can provide similar uh, cost-effective mechanisms on an ongoing basis. So um, uh, reduction in cost uh, over the past uh, couple of years. And Matt also put in a great uh, chart uh, a bar chart, which charts the spending, but it shows in a graph the, those lines. And then he takes a look at kind of behind the numbers and uh, what it might show uh, that I've just articulated. Walmart hired Jay Jorgensen, who I think was a just a brilliant hire uh, to be their uh, D.C. lawyer. I think he was at Gibson Dunn, but perhaps another firm. Uh, anyway, he went to be their global chief compliance officer, and he's really worked very well uh, to strengthen a program um, that really was was not existent before. So uh, kudos to Jay, kudos to his team, because one of the things that uh, they have done is they've gone out on the speaker circuit and talked about it. And not only has this benefited Walmart, but Jay, I think it's benefited the greater compliance community because they've talked about the challenges of uh putting in a compliance program when you have um, 2.2 million employees across the globe and when you have nearly half a trillion dollars in annual revenue and you have a, uh, a workforce education literally from uh, almost zero schooling up through, uh, obviously, PhDs and JDs. So, um, you know, kudos to Jay, kudos to Walmart for putting this program in place. And then Matt also points out that uh, at least it was reported in the pr press uh, this fall that uh, the DOJ and SEC proposed a $600 million settlement for Walmart's FCPA matter, uh, which was rebuffed by the company. It's unclear whether or not the uh, matter will be resolved before the administration changes. Uh, Matt speculates that perhaps Walmart's waiting for a change in administration. They think they will get off with with less punishment. The uh, Of course, downside to that is uh, if you leave that open, you're still open. And uh, corporations want nothing more than certainty, so they may want to close this out by uh, year-end for the year-end uh, 2016 uh, books. So um, this is one that everybody's watching. I know you've been involved, so uh, you can't really come in a lot of the formal stuff. But uh, kind of from the outsider perspective, uh, looking at what Matt has written, anything that jumped out at you? Um, well, first first of all, I wanted to um – 
give give a correction. So uh, Jay was actually at Sidley Austin. Sidley before Austin. He Thank you. Walmart, so just wanted to get that out there. Um, actually, Matt's got me thinking about what my weekend read is going to be, and it's the question of during the uh, first Super Bowl when the uh, Patriots were playing the Rams, and there was about thirty seconds left. You remember that Coach Madden said, "Take a knee, run out the clock, and go to overtime." Right. So the question. And here is, uh, I want to take a look uh, at some of the uh, ending years uh, at an administration change. So take a look at the the juncture when um, Clinton left and Bush came in, and then when Bush left and uh, Obama came in, and take a look uh, if there were any of these uh, matters that were hanging out at the end, and whether you go for what you know and deal with the regulators who've been working the matter for the last some odd years, or do you throw the dice and see what's going to happen uh, in OT? So um, I, I think it's, uh, I would agree with you, Tom, that I think uh, the sooner that this matter can get settled, the better off it is. And um, I would just want to be curious, where do you think that that $600 million number came from? How do you, how do you think it was leaked? And, and what is the strategy of putting that out in, in, in the press right now? You know, I, it's really no way to tell because you don't know how much of that was Department of Justice criminal uh, penalty. You don't know how much of that was a SEC civil fine and profit disgorgement. Um, you don't really have any any insight into how that number was derived. We don't have any insight as yet into the scope, if any, of the bribery scheme. Certainly, we have the uh, New York Times article from 2012, but we also have a Wall Street Journal article from 2015 that uh, suggested that there was very little um, bribery and corruption in Mexico, although there were hints of it in other jurisdictions. So without really knowing the scope of the bribery, how high up it went in the organization, there's no way to really estimate uh, what uh, the basis of the penalties would be either from the criminal side under the Department of Justice or the civil side under the SEC. Uh, is it safe to say that the number was just leaked by Vladimir um, Putin? Uh, I think it was uh, de definitively leaked to uh, influence the uh, 2016 <laughs> presidential election, although he may have wanted to influence the uh, 2018 midterm elections and indeed into the 2020 presidential election. He's just he's uh, ramping up early. All right, just couldn't resist. I had to be snarky on that one. So um, we uh, release. We, when I say we, I literally mean we. You and I, uh, our colleagues Mike Volkoff, Matt Kelly, and Jonathan Armstrong, uh, released an ebook on Trump on compliance. It was published by Maurice Gilbert at uh, Corporate Compliance Insights. <laughs> Uh, it was based upon some of the discussions we've had on our Everything Compliance podcast, and I just wanted to give our listeners a shout out. It's available for free on uh, Corporate Compliance Insights site. We will link to that in the show notes. If you haven't read it, I hope uh, that you have. But the other thing I wanted to emphasize, Jay, is that this is not a one-off ebook. Uh, Maurice Gilbert has asked us to continue the conversation. We are going to be, Everything Compliance will be the site to talk about Trump and compliance probably throughout uh, the administration. 
So we're going to have podcasts on it. We're going to, all of us will write from our own unique perspectives and we'll put it together in an ebook. And then Maurice will distribute it through his fabulous site at Corporate Compliance Insights. So I hope our listeners will be uh, interested in that and uh, we will uh, all move forward with that. Yeah. So, so thank you, Maurice and your, um, uh, your crew there. Uh, it's, it's a great ebook. It's, um, uh, it's it's an interesting read, and as Tom said, I think the part that's really engaging for all of us is that we're going to be able to uh, keep tabs on this and, and make this almost uh, a living document and uh, uh, basically a, a testament to what's happening in the administration as it moves forward. And I really have to to give a shout out to Maurice because he came up with the title for this first ebook. He's titled it Part One. But the subtitle is, It's Not the Apocalypse, comma, Yet. So I uh, hope you will, uh, if you haven't downloaded that book, uh, ebook, you will do so. And Jay, I wanted to end up with a little bit of discussion with something which I thought was uh, very interesting, which was the Securities and Exchange Commission concluded a enforcement action against United Airlines for domestic bribery. It involved bribery at the highest levels of United uh, indeed, the CEO and senior executives for the chairman of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which controls the Newark Airport. The bribe paid was a specific money loop flight route was reinstituted from Newark to Columbia, South Carolina, so that the chairman, David Sampson, who has pled guilty to uh, extortion uh, or corruption, I should say, um, uh, could fly to his uh, weekend home. And um, the really interesting thing about it, Jay, was it was the first time the Securities and Exchange Commission had used internal controls to fight domestic corruption, uh, not based upon the FCPA, but based upon the 1934 uh, Securities Act of 1934. And the even more interesting was that the internal control which was violated was the United Code of Conduct. And I don't think any of us had thought that thought think of a code of conduct as an internal control, but if you really think through it, it certainly is. Um, but uh, there was a, as with all co- codes of conduct, there's language in there that says the company won't pay bribes, and um, here we have the CEO doing it, and so the, the SEC sanctioned United uh, for for. Uh, allowing the CEO to violate the code of conduct. And they also sanctioned United for not having an internal control around the uh, how routes were instituted, or in this case, reinstituted. So there was both a failure of internal controls and a lack of internal controls. If you read the uh, SEC order, it was almost exactly what read like a uh, FCPA case, but it didn't cite to the FCPA. And indeed, it turned out that the uh, the United had settled with the Department of Justice on the criminal side of things with a non-prosecution agreement back in July. And if you read that order, that looks just like an FCPA case. And indeed, the NPA specified that United would institute a best practices anti-corruption compliance program uh, that is straight out of Schedule C out of every DPA. So uh, it was pretty clear the both the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission we're using uh, internal controls in a way that had not been done before, and um, we now have what I've called uh, a U.S. Corrupt Practices Act, uh, essentially, 
uh, without additional legislation. So I think this could be a really interesting development, Jay. And uh, I don't, uh, in the trial lawyer world, we have a saying that bad facts lead to bad law. And when you have a CEO involved in a decision which leads to a bribe being paid, um, that's very bad facts. And whether or not this will lead to uh, something new, uh, I don't know. But uh, it's certainly now we have a precedent set both on the criminal and civil side that if a company employee uh, from the boardroom to the shop floor violates the code of conduct, that could be an internal controls violation, and that could be an SEC uh, Securities Act violation. Very interesting. Um, and ha- has there ever been anything that's come close to this, or this is the first time? Well, it was the first case I had found where uh, domestically, leave, leaving apart internationally under the FCPA, but the, the key here was, one, it was domestic, and two, the internal control violation was the code of conduct. Um, and that's something every company has. Mike Volkoff and I used to debate the following um, topic on what if a company instituted internal controls, someone violated that, did that now rise to the level of a civil or criminal violation? And I said, Mike, it can never be that violation of a company policy could be a civil or criminal violation. That's an internal company policy. Well, as I told him yesterday, it turned out he was right and I was wrong. And even more to the point, <clears throat> Every company has a uh, code of conduct, and that code of conduct says the things that codes you've worked under and I've worked under say. They say, we don't countenance harassment, we don't discriminate, we don't engage in antitrust behavior, we don't engage in bribery and corruption, uh, all of those things. Well, now if you do any of those, you may have an SEC internal controls violation on your hand, and, and that really is something that we haven't seen, certainly in the FCPA space. Yeah, and uh, uh, when you read the orders, does it does it say that it came out of a, a certain jurisdiction that was prosecuting it? Was it was it SDNY or where was it coming from? Uh, it came out of uh, the Northern District of uh, New Jersey. Okay, because so, that's so where there- the uh, the conduct occurred. Uh, interestingly, this uh, was discovered in the investigation of Bridgegate uh, scandal involving uh, officials uh, of Governor Christie's staff who were uh, found guilty in the Fort Lee uh, matter. Um, this was unrelated to that. Nevertheless, it came up through that. And once again, uh, on the bad facts make bad law, this certainly was bad facts and high-profile bad facts. So the New Jersey U.S. Attorney's Office um, uh, prosecuted. So uh, earlier this week, you you wrote more about uh, internal controls and you know, how you, you need to look, uh, especially with the holiday season coming about. So um, what kind of remediation do you think will will be put into effect now at United? And I would think other airlines will want to pay attention to this as well. So how, how does an internal control, what would you design that would, uh, how, how would it look at the routes and, and changes? What would be the way to write that so it's effective? Sure. The uh, uh, United actually had a protocol for evaluation of routes. They did a basically a business justification. Then they did a uh, uh, financial analysis uh, of the route, including projections. Uh, they determined um, 
variable factors such as uh, uh, fuel costs that uh, might go up or down. And then, uh, obviously, uh, passengers uh, were factored into as well. And then a decision was made, but it was largely a quantitative decision based upon the profitability. And here we had a route that I went, I believe went for some 18 months, and United lost four hundred, excuse me, $945,000 on this. Uh, the benefit they were going to receive was uh, the chairman, uh, chairman Sampson scuttled their agreed-upon hangar expansion in Newark. And this hangar expansion was uh, forecast to generate some $47.5 million in profits to United. So uh, it was a clear quid pro quo here, but um, United had taken the steps to determine route feasibility. It was determined to be not feasible for economic reasons. It was recommended by the committee that uh, did that, that it not go forward. And then uh, it didn't until the uh, CEO decreed otherwise. So simply you have a protocol, you write the protocol down, you follow the protocol. If there's an exception to the recommendation of the committee charged with it, you have to uh, justify that exception. So in this case, I would say put in an internal control where you perform your business justification, your financial analysis, you look at the risks, you get a contract in place, and then you manage those risks. If you determine not to move forward under a contract, uh, that should be the end of the story. But if it's overridden at higher levels, that overriding that or what we would call an exception must be noted and it must be have a business justification in writing that can be evaluated by a regulator. So that's the internal control I would suggest. Okay, so it's almost like if you're bringing on a third party and you have to make the business reason and you have to be the champion and you're responsible for that, that's that same kind of liability. And I guess the, the next question that I would ask is, is there anything that can happen to the CEO now? Or Well, he was uh, terminated uh, from uh, United, so he's uh, left his job. And um, I suppose he, he, uh, with the NPA, it's possible he could be prosecuted, but uh, I would say it's less than likely. All right, but, it, but he still paid a, a very high penalty for what he did. He certainly did. That's correct. Yeah. So I guess that also satisfies things from a Yates memo perspective. Um, we don't know the answer to that. Okay. Well, very interesting case. Uh, and w- how would you see other people use other countries using this now? Do you think this fuels anything from a, a UK bribery act perspective, or do you think it will in- increase, uh, cooperation and more things looking I- internally into our domestic policy and our domestic, um, you know, issues? Well, uh, that's, a, that's an excellent point, but uh, if you've got someone violating the Code of Conduct inside the United States and you're a U.K. company, it may become a U.K. Bribery Act uh, violation. It certainly could lead to more domestic prosecution of corruption cases uh, as well. Well, thank, thanks so much for bringing this up. I think this is a, a great case uh, to close on. Uh, I guess the one last thing we have is that um, – Enforcement Director Andrew Ceresny uh, has said that he's going to leave the uh, SEC by the end of the year, and that's um, probably not surprising uh, considering what's happening in Washington right now. So 
Uh, we'll, we'll have to look look at that as a developing situation and see who they end up bringing in. So, um, could you give us a maybe a sneak preview of the Jay Rosen weekend update? Sure. So uh, it's going to be called uh, "Take a Knee or Go into Overtime," and we're going to take a look at uh, administration changes and if there are any uh, pending uh, FCPA uh, matters that whether they quickly settled before the uh, old admission administration left or if they carried on to the new administration. So that's my idea. Um, I still have to figure out and see if there's actually any data to uh, speak towards it one way or the other, but that's what we're going to do. Take a knee or go into overtime. Well, very good. Well, Jay, uh, once again, it's been a very interesting week in uh, the FCPA and uh, have a great weekend. And I look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Great. And thank you to everyone out there for joining us to take a look at the FCPA week that was. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I have two requests for you. The first is, if you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, if you could rate it, it would greatly help our rankings. The second is, if you have any questions you would like answered in a mailbag episode, please email them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.